Well, if you've, got your, um, if you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 22. We are returning to uh, the Gospel of Luke. This will be our last stretch <clears throat> in Luke's Gospel. Jesus and the Twelve have finally arrived in Jerusalem, and the time is drawing near for Jesus to make the ultimate sacrifice of his own life. The people received Jesus into the city with aplomb and excitement. They were, they were happy to see this man that they had heard so much about enter into Jerusalem. And ever since he arrived, he's, he's been teaching in the temple courtyards and people have been paying great attention to him. Jesus has not watered down his message one bit. Even though there are many eyes upon him, even though his opponents, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests are growing increasingly aggravated by him, he refuses to make his message more popular. Instead, he preaches what God has sent him to preach, and he preaches it without reservation. In the six verses we're going to be studying here today in chapter 22, we're going to begin to see that there is someone, even within Jesus' own inner circle, who has begun to turn away from him as well. The seeds of betrayal are planted as Jesus approaches the final hours that he will spend upon this earth. And so if you've got your scriptures and you are open to Luke chapter 22, we're going to be studying together verses 1 through 6 today. <clears throat> God's word says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of, the, of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them to him, betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Would you take just a moment with me to pray as we ready our hearts to learn from God's word today? Mighty God, I just thank you for instructing us with this revelation that is so important to our understanding, so important to our health, Lord God. I pray that as a church, you would keep us founded on your word, that we would seek it. And in, as we seek it, Lord, that we would seek you. I praise you, God, for giving us instruction and for telling us the story of your plan for redemption through creation. And I, I ask, Lord God, that we would give Jesus all the glory and honor and praise for the miraculous redemption that he has brought to us through his work on the cross. Lord, help these words to sink into our hearts. Help us to not sin against you, Lord, as we seek to live out the word in practice. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in the first verses of uh, chapter 22, Luke tells us that the Passover is drawing very near. The Passover was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which the Jews celebrated over the course of seven days. And this festival commemorated the Israelites' quick exodus out of Egypt once Moses had finally brought the plagues upon uh, the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh had relented and allowed these people to be set free. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread brought those Jewish people's attention back to that mighty work that God had done through their heritage. And the Passover was the first day of that festival. We don't know how many Jews had converged upon the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate that feast and to participate in it, but uh, many commentators believe it could have been upward of two million people that were gathered in that place. And so you can imagine that as Jesus is teaching that many of those, those people were gathering to hear what he had to say. They were interested in this man who many believed was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, that he was the chosen one, the Messiah that God had sent 
to redeem Israel and to reestablish the kingdom that had been under Roman rule for so long. <clears throat> we learned in chapter 21 that the opponents of Jesus had given up trying to confront him in the public squares. As each time they opposed him, each time they tried to back him into a corner or put him in a catch-22 scenario, <clears throat> he was always better equipped in the word to answer them. He was always prepared. And so no matter how clever they were, Jesus always had an answer and he did not back down. Eventually they just stopped trying. They gave up. But just because his opponents were no longer confronting him publicly, that doesn't mean they have resolved to stand by and just let Jesus preach as he pleases. While Jesus addresses the crowds publicly, a plot is being crafted against him privately. The chief priests who were led by a man named Caiaphas have settled on a solution. They're tired of waiting to see how things will work out with this man who's identifying himself with the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. They are ready for action. They are concerned that if they wait too long, then Jesus might stir up a crowd and a rebellion might break out, which would cause Rome to come down with military strength upon the Jews who were enjoying a degree of, of autonomy at this time. They had some freedom under Roman rule. And those who would have suffered the most at a rebellion would have been those chief priests who were in high with the Roman officials and had, had great wealth and comfort in that Roman Empire regime. But just because his opponents are no longer confronting him publicly, that doesn't mean that there isn't pressure being put on Jesus. Now, the way they went about accomplishing this plan, the scheme, had to be very calculated. The chief priests can see for themselves that with each passing sermon that Jesus preaches in the courtyards, that the people are identifying with him more and more. They are standing behind his teachings. They are, they are coming to believe in this traveling rabbi. The chief priests aren't ignorant people. They realize that if they went and tried to arrest Jesus in the public squares, there very well could be a riot and a rebellion against the Jewish officials for doing so. <clears throat> With so many Israelites crammed into the city of Jerusalem for the special festival week, they didn't want to ignite a powder keg of resistance against their, 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 uh, their plot. <clears throat> and so these chief priests and officials figured that their best strategy would be to capture Jesus secretly when he was away from the crowds and then to put him to death quietly so there wouldn't be such a public outcry. So they devised a scheme to do just that. But one key component was missing. They needed an inside man. They didn't know where Jesus would be at a given time, on a given date. They weren't aware of when he would be away from these crowds. Every waking moment it seemed that he was preaching. He was around people. He was always gathering people to himself so that he could preach the truth and reveal God's will to them. In Luke chapter 21, verses 37 through 38, it said, And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So in the waking hours of the day, he was constantly surrounded by people. And though we know that he was camping with his disciples on the mount called Olivet, the officials did not know that. The high priests weren't aware that that's where he was staying. And so they needed an inside man. They needed an informant who would tip them off to where he would be and reveal his schedule so that they would know when Jesus was apart from the crowds and they could take him by force. Now probably everyone sitting in this room already knows who that man's going to be. Perhaps the most well-known betrayer in the history of the world 
is Judas Iscariot. And we're going to be spending a great deal of time considering his heart and his change of mind this morning. Judas was one of the twelve selected specifically by God to serve alongside his son. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he walked with the man. He tabernacled with the man. He listened to this man preach. He received benefits that you and I could only dream of, knowing that, that this man every day for three years was listening to the Son of God expound truth to the audiences, knowing that he was able to see with his own eyes those supernatural miracles, those healings, the casting out of demons, be able to watch this Jesus walk upon the water out to the boat. He saw Jesus do things that clearly identified him as something more than just a man. In fact, he was man and God at the same time. We talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. This Judas was not only able to witness great things, but he was used by God to do important and significant things under the ministry of Jesus. Remember, Jesus empowered his men, sent them out two by two to go and preach the gospel into the countryside of Judea and in the wilderness. And yet despite the abundance of evidence and the overwhelming advantages of living closely with Jesus, Judas eventually decides that following the anointed one was not for him. How does a person go from disciple to betrayer? How is it even possible to see with your own eyes the power and the divinity of Jesus Christ and yet still turn your back on him? To harden your heart in such a way that you would sell him out for a measly bag of silver. I think one of the scariest things about Judas' betrayal of Jesus is that the hardness of heart that is required for such a betrayal is not so uncommon as we would like to think. I remember when my first son was born. We were at Kaiser in Walnut Creek. And it was such a miracle for me to see life come from my wife and to know that we had a part in bringing that little human being into the world. And I was just buzzing with wonder at what God does. And I remember standing in the hallway as we were waiting for my son to get, they do these little uh, hearing tests on newborns to determine that they can hear well. And I was standing in line with this other dad. And I said, are, are you here because your, your child was just born? And he said, yeah, just a few hours ago. And I said, me too. And I said, isn't it amazing that, that God can do something like that through us? And he said, well, I don't know about the God part, but yeah, I guess babies are pretty amazing. And I just remembered myself thinking, how could you see this life come from, from, from the womb and not know that God is real? To see the miracle of life and not be moved to praise and worship God, I just can't understand. But at the same time, we look around us and there's a world that is seeing the miracle of God's creation every day and is able to overlook it. I don't want us to see Judas today as some special exception to the rule of humanity. This man who for some reason was corrupted beyond repair and so he did the unspeakable and turned his back on Jesus. We need to see Judas as a man who took his eyes off Christ. And when we take our eyes off Christ, friends, terrible things happen. Many people who seem very convincing and their outward religious activities are not authentically faithful. We see in Judas a man who everyone from the outside would have seen as a very godly individual. 
Somebody who has given up his regular life to come and follow after a rabbi, to travel from city to city, to preach good things, to minister to the needs of the people in the countryside. For all intents and purposes, he seemed like a godly individual. We can think back to the words that Jesus spoke on the Sermon of the Mount, where he urged his disciples to consider the, the sincerity of their faith. He explained that the true commitment in a man's heart would be revealed on the day that they stood before their judge and their creator. Matthew 7, 22 through 23 says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a difficult truth that Jesus is revealing to his people in this Sermon on the Mount that he preached in Matthew 7. And we learn a couple of really important things about unfaithful followers here. <coughs> Standing before God, some will hope to be judged by him according to what they have done in this life. They are trusting their own works, but they lack a very critical component. They lack a true love for Jesus. To, to recap what was said in verse 22, these individuals will stand before the Lord Jesus and they'll start listing off all of the great things that they accomplished for Jesus. And they're no small things. Did I not do a lot of religious stuff for you, God? Are you not impressed by my faithfulness and my obedience? Are, are you not moved by my willingness to give and to do? The scriptures do tell us that we will know true faith by the evidence of faithful works in a person's life. But good works mean nothing if they are not flowing from a heart that is surrendered to Jesus our Savior. He wants our love. He doesn't just want our obedience. The truth is there will be those from time to time who bear what we might consider false fruits, good deeds that seem to flow from the commands of Scripture, that seem to adhere to what God has instructed us to do, and which may even have some practical benefit to the body of believers, to the people of God. But because they do not come from a heart that loves God, and is submitted to him in a trusting way, they carry no merit. So we learn that without a love for the Lord Jesus, our good deeds do nothing for us before the throne of God. Secondly, we learn that Jesus responds to their argument by saying, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does that mean? That means that these individuals are not people who became Christians, received the Holy Spirit, and then at some point in their life, lost track of what was right and lost the Holy Spirit and stopped being saved. They are individuals who seemed to walk in the pattern of Christianity, but never actually gave their lives to Christ, never actually received Him as Lord and Savior. Perhaps they saw Jesus as the escape route away from hell, but they did not give the Lord God the keys to the kingdom of their heart. He never became their Lord. He was something to them, but he was not their Lord and Savior. It's clear here that they did not fall away from a true relationship with Jesus because despite their religious activity, he never knew them. Judas appears to be a clear example 
of one who seemed for all intents and purposes like a man of faith. But time and temptation revealed the true love of his heart and it wasn't Jesus. This scripture warns us that we should be very aware of our hearts. Christianity is not just about what you do. It's not just about how you behave. It's about what you love. Specifically, it's about who you love. And the greatest command in the Old Testament remains the greatest command in the New, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is, this is critical to the New Testament believer as well. The failure of Judas to stay near to the Lord, to trust Him and to love Him with a committed love reminds us to be sure that we put our faith in Jesus rather than in the men who follow Jesus. Here is one of the 12 men set aside, the 12 men who didn't turn away when things got difficult, the 12 men whom Jesus continually confided in and shared even, even the most intricate details of God's plan for his life. And yet one of them got up and walked away in the end. There will be people in your life, brothers and sisters, that you consider godly. People who seem to be walking in the truth. People who seem to have an authentic faith who at one point or another let you down, sometimes in fantastic and amazing ways. Guard your heart that you are not too devastated when some person shows you their depravity by their actions. When I was a young man, I was, I was just beginning to really pick up steam in my faith. I had, had become more focused on my discipleship in Jesus. I gave my life to Christ when I was a young boy at eight but I didn't really have a place to grow in the faith until I was about 14 years old. And so as a young man, I was a sophomore in, in high school, I was about 15 years old, there was an older guy in our youth group that I, I really started looking up to. And this guy seemed to have his act together, man. When they asked questions in Sunday school, he was bold to speak up. He had been in church. He knew what to say and how to respond. He was, was always talking about you know, how he wanted to live his faith out and the different things he wanted to do for the glory of God. And so I, I tended to, to really look at this guy as a role model for me. I wanted to be bold like him. I wanted to be fearless in my faith. I wanted to share my faith with other people. I wanted to be like that guy. And he was kind of this sort of mythical Christian figure to me for a few years until a couple years after he graduated, he was several years older than me. And one day we learned that his girlfriend was pregnant. And this pure life that he seemed to be living began to reveal cracks. And then, then I found out from other people that he had a whole other group of friends outside of the church that he would go and party with on the weekends and that he'd actually gotten a DUI because he was driving drunk. And, and this man who I thought was living for the Lord, in fact, was living kind of a dual life. He was living the Christian life while he was with us and was checking off all the boxes of what a righteous Christian person would do. But when people were not looking, he was living according to the flesh. And pretty soon, my friend stopped coming around. And it's been just a handful of times probably that he's been to church in the last 25 years. I don't believe that that man ever really trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a young man who looked up to him and saw him as an example to me, there was great potential for me to be de devastated by that. How many people do you know say, oh, I would go to church with you, but I had a terrible experience one time with somebody in the church, somebody who I thought was authentic, and they proved to me that they were not authentic. They were hypocrites, and so now I don't want to be any part of that. 
Friends, this might hurt a little, but human beings are hypocritical. Human beings fail. Human beings have weak faith. We are not called to be Christians so we can be like other Christians. We are called Christians so we might be like Christ. And I praise the Lord God that I had, I had wise enough Sunday school teachers and other mentors in my life that were pointing me toward Christ, toward Christ, toward Christ, so that when my friend, who I thought was a good example of me, failed, I didn't lose my faith. I didn't, I didn't give up hope. I didn't think, well, that must be everybody. Everybody must be corrupt in heart and living a lie. I didn't think that way. Instead, I thought, I don't want to go down that same path. And my friend didn't stop coming to church because everybody judged him and pushed him away. He stopped coming for church, uh, to church because the gig was up. The lie was revealed, and he knew that he couldn't fool anybody anymore. So as much as my heart broke for that man, I had to realize that my true role model, my true example is Christ, not some Christian. God may use many people in our life as examples, but he is the one we really ought to imitate and follow. And the best examples in a worldly sense that you're going to find are people who you can imitate because they are imitating Jesus. Now our passage in Luke 22 reveals that there were particularly interesting circumstances regarding Judas' betrayal. For the first time since Jesus was tempted by the devil after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the chapter of 4 of Luke, way back in chapter 4, this is the first time that Satan makes an appearance in the book of Luke again. Chapter 4, verse 13, it had indicated that after the wilderness temptation, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. What was that opportune time? That opportune time was verses 1 through 6 of Luke chapter 22. The opportune time was now. Satan had been carefully waiting for an opening and potential, a weakness here that he sees that he can capitalize on and he sees it in one of Jesus' closest followers. When Judas approached the chief priests to join their plot, Luke 22 tells us that he was acting under the influence of someone with a heart even harder than his own. He was acting upon the urging of Satan. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who is one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Satan entered into G Judas. He became uh, uh, an overwhelming influence to him. Now, a verse like this brings up all kinds of questions in our mind, doesn't it? How did something like this happen? Was there something that could have been done to prevent this overwhelming influence of Satan? Is Satan's influence evidence that Judas was really not at fault here, that he was just an innocent victim that was possessed by an evil greater than himself? To be clear... Satan is a formidable enemy to us, friends. He has a degree of freedom in this world. For a time, he has been given some dominion over the earth. He can tempt us. He can afflict us from outside. And we should watch and be aware of his schemes. Scripture makes this clear. Ephesians 6.11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's scheming against us, but we can stand against him. And the, the armor that we need to protect ourselves from his plots has been given to us. And scripture tells us what it is. James 4, 7, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we can't write the devil off as some chump we don't have to worry about. We're to resist him. We're to stand firm against him. 
1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So unless you want to become lion food, keep your eyes open. The enemy is a formidable opponent. And we need to stand firm against God's enemy because he's our enemy as well. And if we let our guard down, he will gladly capitalize on our distraction. But while the enemy is a real threat to us, we cannot blame Satan for our failures. It's very important for us to understand that. There is no innocent victim in this world when it comes to sin. The influence of Satan upon Judas does not absolve him of his responsibilities in the betrayal of Jesus Christ. He is still beholden to his own actions. Though Satan was more than happy to capitalize on Judas' wandering heart, that doesn't mean that Judas is off the hook or is an innocent bystander swept up in some cosmic battle between good and evil. Judas fails to do the one thing that Jesus had just urged them to do at the end of the previous chapter's teaching. He did not watch his heart. It's been a few weeks since we were in chapter 21, but in the 21st chapter, where we left off at the end of October, Jesus had been, given some, had been giving some clear indicators that he was soon going to be departing the world. He promised that one day in the future, he would return and bring his believers, his, his followers, in, into heaven with him before this final judgment on all creation. For believers who remain on earth in the meantime, before his second coming, Jesus described what our state of mind should be as we wait for him to come back for us. We just sang about that just a few moments ago in the song uh, just preceding the sermon. Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36 says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So there are three obvious warnings that are given in that passage I just read to you. The disciples are first told to watch, to be alert to the danger of temptation. The world that we live in, it's like a spiritual minefield. Wherever you go, there are opportunities for wickedness. And if we weren't paying attention to where we step, we might find ourselves in the middle of our enemy's plots to disgrace the Lord God. It is so easy to fall into temptation in this world where sin is celebrated, where sin is heralded as, as what is good for us, when in reality it draws us far, far away from God. So watch carefully and be aware of the dangers that surround you. Secondly, we're, we're told, do not allow yourself to become entangled by the trap of worldliness. The hardness of heart that caused a close disciple like Judas to stray away from Jesus was not necessarily an all-of-a-sudden decision, but was more likely an accumulation of a hundred minor distractions that were allowed to work their way into his mind and entangle his heart until eventually the gospel seed was choked out and that sprout of a plant was, was suffocated and was never allowed to grow up and bear the true fruit of a real uh, disciple. So we're told to be aware of the dangers, to watch out, to not allow ourselves to be entangled by the schemes of the enemy. And then thirdly, we're, we're told to pray. <clears throat> to pray for the strength to remain alert and to escape from, God's, or from the enemy's plans when necessary. 
See, prayer is our constant companion. It sets our eyes again and again on the Father and reminds us of our great need to depend on Him every hour of every day. If we are not engaged in a regular, constant prayer, then we leave ourselves vulnerable to the schemes of this evil one who is a deceiver and knows how to pull the wool over our eyes. Judas, unfortunately, did not protect his heart. He was not alert to the dangers that were around him. And we can only assume that his prayerful connection to the Father was lacking. The Gospel of John gives us some detailed information that Luke does not share with us. And so I want us to go to chapter 12 if you want to change, uh, switch your pages over there to, to John chapter 12. <clears throat> Judas' potential faith was, was going off of a path long before this decision to betray Jesus. In chapter 12 of John, which just happens... Uh, which happens just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. We know that Jesus spent some time in Bethany there with Lazarus, his friend that he had raised from the dead, and with, with uh, Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters. And in that time in Bethany, as the disciples had gathered together in a home, the following things occurred. This is John 12, verses 3 through 6. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this, anointment, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, the seeds of rebellion had already been sown in Judas because his mind and his heart were fixed on things other than Christ. He might have been a part of the mission, but it wasn't his primary concern. He was thinking about the money. He was thinking about personal financial gain. Consequent accounts in Mark chapter 14 and Matthew 26 also record this controversial anointing. And in both narratives, Judas seeks out the chief priests to offer his service directly after this event occurs in Bethany. So there's ample reason to believe that Judas' betrayal was financially motivated. Luke's account says that the chief priests and officers were glad that he was willing to help. He was exactly the inside man that they were looking for. And, and they were willing to pay him good money to be a part of their plot. Matthew actually reveals that Judas was specifically motivated by that payoff. He says in verse 14 of Matthew 26, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? So, so Judas was seeking the payout. He wanted to jump ship from Jesus' ministry, and he thought, well, I might as well make a few dollars before I leave and go my own way. So Judas is surrounded by the evidence of Christ's glory, but his mind is not on it. He can see the marks of God's hand on Jesus' ministry, but it doesn't hit him in the heart. It doesn't affect him in the soul. He's thinking about the world. He's thinking about the money in his bag, about the opportunities he has to advance himself. Jesus is seen as a means to an end instead of the end itself. And so Judas, Judas, Judas is captivated more by the material things around him in the world than he is by the divine Savior that God has sent to redeem his people. And so for a sum of 30 pieces of silver, he sells out his friend. That's what Matthew tells us Judas received for selling out Jesus Christ. 
That's what it costs to make Judas the most infamous betrayer in the history of mankind. Four months' wages. Friends, it's easy to look at Judas and scoff and to think what a wretched man, what a terrible example of, of what can go wrong with humanity. But if we're honest with ourselves, we've turned our back on Jesus for far less than four months' wages, haven't we? There have been times when the Lord God has put it on our hearts to stand and instead we sat or we sulked back into the shadows. There have been times when God desired for us to love those who needed it and instead we kept our resources for ourselves. There have been times when the truth of God was plain to us and we pretended to be confused so later we could just say, I just didn't understand what God wanted for me there. Because what we really wanted was what we wanted and not what God wanted for us. Betrayal is something we have to guard our hearts against as well, friends. It is not just something exclusive to this one man in history, Judas. There's one more important point I'd like to make before we wrap up this passage in, in Luke chapter 22 here. This betrayal by Judas is not the story of Satan thwarting God's plan. Every effort that the enemy makes to stop the Lord God and his will fails. Every effort. And just so, when it seems that Satan is finally hatching some scheme that will interfere with God's plan, that will bring Jesus Christ to death, that will stop him from bringing this kingdom to come into reality, God is actually putting Satan's rebellious heart to work against him. He is planning to use his enemy, to accomplish what he knows must happen, the death of his son, Jesus Christ. God is sovereign. He is in charge of all things. And so Satan stole nothing from God that was actually his, Judas included. Think back to the Old Testament. When Israel rebelled continually for generation after generation, what did God do to show them and humble them show them their need for repentance. He allowed a sinful nation to come in and defeat them in battle. 150 years later, when Judah refused to learn from their example and continued to, to reject the covenant of God and live apart from it, what did God do? He raised up a Gentile leader, Nebuchadnezzar, and empowered him to humble Judah and the people that lived there. God will use wretched people to accomplish his greater goal if it suits him. And that is exactly what he is doing with Judas Iscariot, a man who refused to put his focus on the Son of God and instead looked in, at the things of the world and was intent on gaining what was perishable and passing away. Though it would seem by the way that the events are unfolding and we can see the seeds of great betrayal beginning to take shape, that the enemy is making his greatest attempt to thwarting the kingdom of heaven and foiling God's perfect plan to save mankind through his Messiah, the opposite is actually true. Jesus knew that his life would be required of him in order to fulfill God's perfect plan. His life was offered up freely. Nobody took it from him. These plotting chief priests did not steal Jesus' life away. They did not paint him into a corner. Satan did not did not take Jesus' life away from him with a battle or with a fight. In John, 7, in John 10, verses 17 through 18, Jesus makes it very clear to us. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Who's in charge of Jesus' death? Jesus is in charge. 
It says in verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That doesn't mean that the enemy has tried to take his life. We've seen several examples of Satan trying to take the life of Jesus. As, as Jesus was born in a little town of Bethlehem, the king at the time of the region, Herod, tried to murder all the infant baby boys who lived there in hopes of killing Jesus before he could live that perfect life that he was called to live. In Luke chapter 4, we read about how uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the Jews who heard Jesus preaching and pointing himself to the prophecies of Isaiah and saying that he was in fact the fulfillment of those prophecies, they tried to grab him and throw him off of a cliff. And yet the scripture tells us that he walked right through their midst. God would not allow him to be executed. In John chapter 8, they tried to stone him. It didn't work. He concealed himself from them. In John chapter 10, guess what they tried to do? Stone him again. Didn't work the first time? Maybe it will work the second time? No, it didn't work the second time. He escaped the angry mob. He was preserved by the hand of God because it wasn't his time. And yet as Judas, with his cold and hard heart, begins to consider how he will betray his friend. And as Satan suddenly seizes on what he sees as an opportunity, what he's actually doing is fulfilling the hour that God has set aside for Jesus to die. The Lord knew when Jesus would give his life up. Jesus Christ knew that it was going to be required of him soon. And God used this betrayer, and he even used his enemy Satan to fulfill that, that calling for Jesus Christ. Though the seeds of betrayal had been sown, even those seeds could not grow apart from the sovereign will of God. In the last few years, there's been a trend in Bible scholarship to try and look at Judas through a new lens. A lot of very intelligent people have tried to present arguments that would say that Judas was, was kind of given a bad rap through history. That Judas was just a man like you and me who made a wrong decision that we have made too much of his betrayal, that he is actually one of the good guys. I don't know if that's a, a general trend around the world. We've seen recently like plays like Wicked where old stories that we are so familiar with are told with a new twist where the villain is suddenly given a human side and, and we, we begin to see them as the protagonist instead of the antagonist. Maybe it's because human beings just can't stand to see the potential wickedness in our own dark hearts. I think there is a danger in vilifying Judas beyond what we should, but I also think there is a greater danger in trying to say that man is not capable of that kind of wickedness. We would benefit better from seeing the wickedness in this man Judah, uh, Judas and realizing that we could do just the same thing if it were not for the grace of God. The Lord holds us back from that kind of sin. And when we trust in him, he gives us the power to overcome that kind of sin. This is the consistent pattern of man to desire to do what we want to do and to reject what God wants us to do. It is the pattern that Judas chose to follow, but it is not the pattern that we have to follow. Through grace, we can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and learn from his failures so that we do not repeat his mistakes and drift from our faithful God. Let us watch. Let us not become entangled. Let us be a people of prayer so that the schemes of the enemy will not drag us down and pull us away from our God. 
In just a few weeks, we're going to see another man's betrayal. Peter, dear friend to Jesus, when given the opportunity to stand and be identified with his rabbi, is going to turn his back on Jesus as well. But we're going to see the difference in the way that turns out for Judas and the way that it turns out for Peter. So I hope you will continue to join us as we work our way through this great gospel of Luke and see how God shows and reveals to us his plan to redeem mankind. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer before we sing our last song and are dismissed today. God, thank you for being a God of grace and a God of truth. I praise you, Lord God, that though we are a wicked people, though we have the potential for great and terrible wickedness, that you have stepped in between, that you have stood in the gap, Lord God, that you have overcome our desire to, to rebel against you, Lord God, and you have instead given us a heart of flesh where a heart of stone used to exist. I pray, Lord God, that we would not underestimate the schemes of our enemy, that we would not ignore the fact that there still is temptation all about us, but instead we would find our, our strength, our power to overcome these temptations in the truth of your gospel. Christ died so that we would not have to live in this pattern of sin, that we would not have to be a slave to it any longer. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would give us a heart that is determined to love you more and more each day. And that might mean that we need to give up some of the things in the world that potentially could pull our attention away from you. Pray, Lord God, that we would never let our heart's affection rest on things that are passing away in such a way that it might keep us from loving you with a full devotion that you deserve. God, help us to be willing to stand firm. Even when uh, those around us are falling, God, let us stay in the light of your gospel. Let us cling to your word. Let us walk in your truth. We thank you for giving the strength to do all these things to us. And we pray that you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>